I will read the text in a few minutes, but first I want to just ask you a few questions. Do you think that Jesus had a favorite number? And imagine, if you would, thinking about different stories in the Bible, Old Testament as well as New Testament. Um, what do you think? If there was a number that Jesus gravitated toward, uh, I'll, I'll suggest some, or unless you've got, do you have, does anybody have a number? Number one. Okay, why one? He worked with people one on one. Okay, that's good. Good answer. Seven. Seven. That's a sevenfold spirit. What, what, what else about that number? It's a number of perfect perfection. Sevenfold spirit, complete. Yeah, that, that would be a good number. Forty. Yeah. What? What? Uh, that there could be multiple reasons for that. Why? Why forty? Ooh, you think those were his favorite days? Oh, the good old days of prayer and fasting and being tempted by the devil one on one. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but he. That was the, that's how he launched. He was sent into his public ministry through that. So 40 days. And uh, wh where else does the number 40 show up in the Bible? 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, so there's a tie-in with those numbers, isn't there? Because as a as sort of side note, this is bonus material, okay? Uh, Jesus was retracing the steps of the fallen Israelites. And so he would... That's why he was baptized. He went down into the Jordan River, came out of that, okay? Okay, so good, 40. What other, what other numbers could Jesus have said, oh, I love that number? 12, ah, yeah, is a, not Mike, is it? Mike, okay, I got lucky with that one, okay? Why 12? 12 straw, okay, again, the Old Testament fulfilled 12. Disciples, 12 tribes. One of those 12 didn't turn out so well, did he? Think of that's a whole nother message. He chose Judas Iscariot, knowing. Yes, Emmanuel. You say three. Why, why do you like three? On the third day, yeah, we just celebrated Easter. Yeah, that would be a good number. Good number. How about 10? Ten Commandments, Jesus fulfilled the, fulfilled the law. Ten is also a combination of seven and three, which is the number of completion. Ten lepers, yes. Number nine might not be a good number in that story. What were they thinking? How about to how many loaves and fishes? Isn't that great story? Five loaves, two fishes. I mean, there's lots of numbers that, that we could pick from. And um, there's no text in the New Testament where Jesus says, by the way, this is my favorite number. But I am going to argue tonight that if there were such a text, we're looking at it tonight. I'm going to suggest to you tonight, based on our text, well, you, you tell me what the number, I think the numbers. Let me read the text for you tonight. If you read it already, you thank you for not giving the answer to the, to the question. Again, and this text from Matthew 18 comes in the context of church discipline. In other words, 
when things go wrong in relationships, and that never happens, right? No, it happens all the time. Jesus gave very specific guidelines as to how you reconcile, how you don't take a bad situation and try to inflame it. You, you try to resolve it. You know, like if, if you've got a problem with me, talk to me. If I did or said something today that you found unbiblical or unnecessarily offensive, you don't go to your elder. You don't call Arnie, who lines up the guest pastors, or Henry, and say, hey, what'd you do? You come talk to me. And if we can't resolve it, then we'll get some other people involved. And eventually, if we are at great odds, Jesus says, okay, now we bring it, we bring it to the church, and together we'll resolve this. And it's at the end of this teaching on discipline, that he says these words. Verse 19. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be given, or it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So I think the answer to that question is arguably, it's two or three. I'd like to explore with you as, as to why these are Jesus' favorite numbers. Now, let's be clear that God's love is for all. There's not one soul who has ever been born or will be born for whom God's love isn't intended for whom their life, Christ's death, was sufficient to pay for all their sins. And the picture that we're given at the end of this world and the ushering in of the, the, the eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, and the book of Revelation, tells us that a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue will be there. In other words, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be a wonderfully crowded place. God loves multitudes. His heart is so large, his love so vast, that everyone can be embraced by the love of God. But the question becomes, how does everyone in that multitude come to that experience? While God loves a crowd, if you look at the lifestyle of Jesus, you'll find something kind of counterintuitive, at least to today's modern North American church and maybe around the world as well, but especially in the context in which we live. Faith Church. How, how big is Faith Church measured in terms of members? Does anybody know? Yeah. Approximately 378. <laughs> okay, now is that attending on, on paper? You just, somebody gave you that number and you didn't challenge them. Okay, somebody knew what they were doing, okay. 378, let's say, uh, let's say that's an accurate number, okay. Um, is that a good church? Is it a good church? 378? Have you ever been smaller? Have you been larger? 
So what's going on? 378. Would you call yourselves a large church? No? A big church? A medium big church? A small church? You're not a small church. You're medium. Okay? Are you a mega church? You're not. Isn't that what everyone aspires to? Well, no. But come on. Wouldn't it be cool if you had like a thousand people coming here and you had to have multiple services in the morning? You had to have multiple services in the evening? You're shaking your head. No, why? You don't like, you don't like mega churches? Well, they can do more, can't they? The bigger, the better. The more, the merrier. You have more money. So you can, what some of those churches do is they hire their singers. They're professionals. They're not these, you know, wonderful <laughs> average members. Bigger is better. Hmm. Not necessarily. How did Jesus operate? Let's just think about that for a moment. When he began his public ministry, he was kind of by himself, right? And he went off, as we reminded ourselves, into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and went toe-to-toe with our greatest adversary and prevailed by the power of the Word and the power of the Spirit. When he emerged from that, he started traveling around. He didn't establish one locale and say, this is where I'm going to build my megachurch, or even my medium church. He just started traveling, right? And he did whatever his father put in front of him, whether it was to start teaching about the Old Testament and that it actually was pointing to himself, whether it was his performing acts of love through healing, healing in private, healing in households. And then at some point, after he had been operating for a while, and he had a pretty large audience, he was getting pretty well known, he called to himself 12 people. And when you read about that experience, he did it after he spent a night in prayer. He's going to select key people in whom he will invest his future. He is going to stake everything that he's going to accomplish in the three years he was given on earth, and he's going to leave it in the hands of these 12 guys. And so he prays. And then we're told who they were. And when he called them, he sometimes called them one at a time. Peter. Remember calling Peter? The fisherman, somewhat uneducated. A guy that was good at making bold statements, but not so good at following through. Matthew, the tax collector. He was collecting money from the Jews to pay the Roman political war machine. Boy, I bet you they loved him. 
And then there was Simon the Zealot. He was like a spiritual terrorist who believed that the way to beat the Romans was with our little swords where we'll sneak up on them in private and we'll kill them off one at a time. We'll terrorize the Romans and we will bring Messiah, the real king. And then there was this guy named Nathaniel who was as sincere as the day is long. No guile. What you see is what you get. James and John, the sons of thunder. I wonder what they were like in youth group. <laughs> and by the way, lest you think that these were men in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, they were not. They were young adults. Guys in maybe their late teens, early 20s. The movies you've seen that show Jesus and the disciples, these bearded guys, like, no, 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 no. no. Think about it. And then there was John, who had a very gentle, sensitive spirit, a keen mind, and a huge heart. And did he treat them all the same? Well, of course he did, because everybody's equal, right? You have to be fair. Hmm. When it came time to go to the Mount of Transfiguration, not long before Jesus would engage with the payment for our sins and have his fiercest battle against sin and darkness. God wanted him to have kind of a retreat. And he brought him up to the top of Mount, I believe it was Mount Hermon, the highest point in the land of Israel. Did he go alone? Who did he bring with him? Peter, James, and John. And there they witnessed a sort of preview of what Jesus is going to become as he was, they were given a glimpse of him in his resurrected glorious body and it was so amazing. And then Moses and Elijah who are the, the two greatest spiritual heroes perhaps for all of Israel representing the law and the prophets, they're there in person. And, and Peter, in his ignorant excitement, says, hey, let's build some, let's build some uh, condos. I like this. Let's stay here. And Jesus is, I don't know, probably thinking, oh, you don't get it. He ignores him. And then there was a time when Jesus, not long after that, is having the Last Supper with his disciples and has that painful encounter with Judas Iscariot who I believe was a zealot. And Judas would deny that he would ever betray him but he says, no, whoever dips with me and it happened. And then John who wrote the Gospel of John describes himself in his book as he calls himself the beloved disciple. And you get the picture that of the 12, while there was a sort of inner triad, even of those three, John had a very, very special place in Jesus' heart. And that's hard for us. You think, well, doesn't God love everybody the same? He does have the same love for everybody, but how he's going to express it is strategic in this point, at this point. Now, as a 
as a pastor of a variety of churches over the years, and I, I got to also serve as the executive director for Youth Unlimited, God's put me in some really, really fun and wonderful situations. My first church that I served in New Jersey, I went out there as the number one draft choice of Calvin Seminary. That was in my mind. <laughs> I, won the C I won the Senior Major Research Paper Award. I got 100 bucks for writing a paper. And I wrote it on church growth. And when I went to this first church I served in, in uh, Prospect Park, New Jersey, I was there at the classes meeting where I was getting ordained, and they showed a church growth chart of all the churches of, of that classes. And all of them were declining. But mine was declining the fastest. And you know what I thought? I didn't take my medicine from this morning. I didn't. I didn't. What I should have done, I said, oh, God, help us. Oh, Lord, I cannot do this. I submit myself to you. I didn't, I didn't realize what you were saying. Oh, God, please, you must. No, my thought was, I'll fix that. Back then, we measured churches by families, 72 families in that church when I started. And after three years of my amazing leadership and ministry, we grew to 59 families. 72 to 59, that's the wrong way. I lost my health after one year because I was working so hard because I thought... If I am going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I must reach as many people as possible. I've got to build the biggest crowd I could ever imagine. And these people just aren't cooperating. They're leaving and going to other churches. And I took it personally because I thought it was up to me. Then God sent me to a church in Ada, Michigan that was growing numerically without even trying. People were just moving out there and joining the church. Didn't matter who the pastor was, it seemed to me, but when I came, we grew even faster. And I didn't say it out loud, but I'm thinking, yes, finally, my gifts are working. And then God did something very special for me. He brought me to an evangelistic crusade. John Guest, in 1985, came like a, a junior Billy Graham to Grand Rapids. And we were going to evangelize Grand Rapids, West Michigan, and I got our church on board with that. We said, yes, we're all in. And on the first Sunday of the event, God sent this, this couple to our church in Ada who had just, I didn't know it, but they had just prayed to receive Christ like two weeks prior. A nominal Catholic background and a nothing background spiritually. Didn't know that. They said, we just, hey, would you guys like to come with us to this, to this crusade, to this event? And I'm thinking, oh, good. I'm bringing people in. And then John Guest had all the nerve and got done preaching the gospel. He spoke to pastors. And he said, how many of you recognize that it's not up to you? How many of you need a fresh new start in your walk with me? How many of you are, are not fulfilling God's call to reach lost people? And I'm sitting there going like, shoot. That's me. I think I'm so gifted and wonderful, but, I, I, you know, I can't, I don't have a lot of results to show you. And, and you know what I did is I, I, I went forward. And I'm thinking, 
what are my new non-Christian or whatever friends going to think of this pastor going forward with all the sinners? And that was the beginning, that genuine moment of repentance that God brought a movement into our church where we started not only reaching people in the church, but people in the community. And it was centered around a discipling relationship, one-on-one. Saw cool things happen. And then God brought me to Youth Unlimited, where, man, it was all about numbers. How many kids can you bring to a convention? How many youth leaders can you train? And we were blessed. We grew. We had large, largest numbers the organization ever had in its history. I got to preach to a crowd of 7,000 people one time in Wisconsin. They even badgered me. <laughs> had to slip that in. Edmonton, Alberta, 5,000 people. Wow. So God exposed me to lots of wonderful situations, but then I'm going to cut to the chase. In the last couple of churches that I served, Sunshine, and then for 12 years at Hillcrest, God has blessed me and opened up my eyes to this text. Well, I've been all enamored with numbers, 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 he said, let me tell you about my idea of what makes sense number-wise. Because nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible do you find Jesus ever saying, if a dozen of you, or a 50 of you, or a 500 of you, or a 1,000 of you will come together in my name, I will show up. I can't find that verse. But I do find this. He says, a couple of you, two or three, will come together in my name. I will show up. I've used this verse over the years, and I think you probably have too, that when you wanted to have an event to gather everybody to come to the church, like even this morning, um, um, Rod made reference to the adult Sunday school that Brian Bosher was going to be there. And I'm thinking, man, you know, this church really likes me. They keep inviting me back, hoping I'll finally get a good sermon maybe. I don't know why I keep coming back, but I think, good, man, it's, it's going to be great, the enthusiasm. And, and I walk into the room, and there's 15 people. The old Brian would have thought, oh, cool, Really? Is that what you think of me? Or you have a prayer service. Ever have you ever organized a prayer service on prayer day? The place is packed out, right? Or the direction that Sunday night services have gone, oh, all the oncers, where are they? And then we pull this verse out and say, oh, but if two or three show up, it's still okay. And I'm here to tell you that if two or three show up in Jesus' name, it is awesome. That's a win. He would rather have two people come together around him than a thousand people who come to do what? Get excited by some music, 
be inspired by a great teacher, preacher, be with other people. Oh, that was a great time, like I went to a concert. And now it's back to my life. Until I can find another bigger event to get me excited, to get me emotionally aroused, to keep me going in my faith. It's wrong. Jesus never, ever left us that model. And by the way, when he went through his greatest testing, which we just remember during Holy Week, how many people ended up standing with him in his greatest hour of need? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he brought his famous three with him, right? And they were right there standing strong or not. Well, they were tired. They fell asleep on Jesus, the Son of God. <laughs> Man, I'm, they're in heaven. I bet you they're still not living that one down. Like, really? And then his, his most outspoken person denied he even knew Jesus. Three times. He took vulgar language on the, in his lips to say it. And Jesus heard it. Who was at the cross with him? There were a couple. John. And who else? And mom. And perhaps a few other women who are not named. And on the cross, while he's dying for the sins of the world, Jesus takes a brief moment to take care of two people. John, behold, this is now your mom. Her soul is getting pierced with a sword as she watches me die. I'm her little boy. I need you to step in. And mom... I'm not going to leave you alone, John. He's paying attention to a detail in a person's, in two people's lives. And when he makes one of his first appearances in the resurrection, he doesn't appear to a crowd. It's to Mary. And then he finds two guys, two of his larger group of disciples, walking on the road to Emmaus, depressed. What's happened? Jesus, in his, his, his new resurrected body, he shows up to two guys. What's all, what's, what are you guys talking about? You haven't heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened? Oh, what happened? Tell me. So they tell him their lamenting story. And, and then Jesus, just with two guys, takes them through the Old Testament. Oh, wouldn't you have loved to have heard that talk? Pointing out how the Messiah was going to have to do it. These things were all going to have to happen. And then he's going to keep going. He said, no, no, you, you, you got to come and, and stay with us. It's, it's dark. It's dangerous. On the, come on in. And so in the context of this little family gathering with these two disciples, 
Jesus gives thanks and breaks the bread. Light goes on in their minds and their hearts. And then he's just, he disappears. And rather than listening to their own advice about it's not good to be out, they get back on the road and go, we've got to go back and tell the disciples that we have just spent some time with Jesus. He's not dead, he's alive. Did Jesus, did he say to the Father, hey God, you know, look at, I am resurrected. It's time for me to show myself as Messiah and Lord and risen Christ to the masses. No, 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 no. Let me just find a couple of people. And in a very intimate relationship, let's be together. Now, I took you on a quick walkthrough of, of my pastoral history. My point of that is to say this. Is that while all of those things had their place and were all wonderful each in their own way, God called me a few years ago to focus on meeting with people one-on-one. -on -one. And it's based on a verse in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. If you were at the Sunday school class this morning, this is old news for you. But 2 Timothy 2, verse 2 says, The things you've heard from me, Paul to Timothy, I want you to teach to some reliable people who in turn will teach others. What a concept. Don't just make other people more informed. Equip them. Teach them, train them. I, I'm teaching you, Timothy. I'm not going to send you away to some school. I am your school. I will apprentice you. I will work with you. And as I work with you, I want you to do the same. And when Jesus was with his disciples for the last time, according to Matthew, before he ascended, he said, here's what I want you to do. I have all authority in heaven and earth been given to me. I want you, while you're going, I want you to make disciples. He didn't say, build me megachurches, make me large crowds. I want to see lots and lots of numbers. I want you to make disciples. And they knew what that meant because they watched him do that with them. Now, they were a part of a small group, but... By his emphasis on Peter, James, and John, we also can infer that, well, he was talking with, with them individually. He gave them insider information to explain the parables. And he spent not just a couple of weeks with them, but he spent a couple of years with them. And he equipped them and trained them. But even then, when he was being ascended to to heaven, uh, it says some still doubted. Like they still didn't fully get it. Because it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came and brought to their minds everything that Jesus said and taught them. Oh. Now what's fascinating is that if you would take a tour of the Holy Land and if you go to uh, Asia Minor where the church spent a lot of time growing... Um, you'll see, you can find some um, 
buildings that were probably churches. But they're not very big. Because they met in households, in small groups, intimate, together. I don't know that to hire many professional people to do that. They just passed the faith on from one to the next. And it wasn't that they had such a great heart for outreach as much as God persecuted them and scattered them. We got to go. Wherever they went, they told the story of Jesus. And as they found people who opened up their hearts to the gospel, they trained them one at a time. And so I had the pleasure of being enticed into becoming a disciple maker by the successful ministry of our youngest son, David. On the one hand, it feels really good to be out-pastored by your son. On the other hand, it's like it feels a little wrong. Like, hey, come on, I've been at this longer than you. How come, how come you are leading people to Christ, but then what you're doing is you're equipping them to know the gospel so well that they're able to, to lead somebody else to Christ and train them. And then it didn't stop there. They, I said, what are you doing? And they told me about this 222 ministry that Pastor Scott Van Plug had been doing for many years down in Port St. Lucie, Florida, Sunlight Community Church, a very solid Christian Reformed church, believes and practices the Reformed faith. But you see, Pastor Scott got this vision when he was a young man, when a pastor pulled him aside and said, Scott, I'd like to meet with you. I want to do Bible study. You mean like have a youth group? No, 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 just you. I just want to study the Bible with you. Like, wow. And then when he was a young adult man, another pastor said, hey, Scott, I'd like to meet with you. You mean like, no, not a group, just you. And then the time came when he said, look, it, I'm, the, I'm, I'm going to be gone for a while on a sabbatical. I need someone to preach for me while I'm gone. I want you to preach. How would you like that, Brian? You'd probably love it. No, I'm just kidding. Pastor Rod said, you know what, I could get a professional from the seminary, you know. We could bring in Basher once in a while and we'll have elders read sermons. That's always exciting. No. He said, Scott, I want to train you. I don't know how to preach. Well, I'll teach you. And when Scott was planted in the church in Port St. Lucie, he thought, well, maybe I should do that same kind of thing. Meet with people one-on-one. And I'll teach them the gospel. I'll teach them about sin thoroughly. I'll teach them about what Jesus did about it very thoroughly. And then I'll give them a little glimpse of what it means to be a Christian. And along the way, I'm going to equip them with this so much confidence in the gospel and just the right amount of information that they'll be able to pass it on to somebody else. And then about three or four years ago, he put it into kind of a curriculum, and we put it into an online tool, and God brought me into this in my last couple of years before I retired when I was at Hillcrest. Now, Jesus said, if two or three will come together, key phrases in my name, there is power in two people agreeing on something. I mean, when, uh, when Rich DeVos and Javen Andel got together in, in somebody's garage and said, Let's make soap. Let's make products. And then they, they, I don't know if they knowingly this, but they borrowed the Jesus method because they didn't want to just build customers. They wanted to build business owners. 
And so that's the thing about Amway, you know, if, if you, if you uh, are approached by somebody, they not only want you to buy the products, they want to invite you to sell them. And I've experienced that in a good and bad way. <laughs> but on the whole, it's a, great, it's a great concept. Well, it's great because Jesus invented it. That's what he meant when he said, go make disciples. But you can't do that in mass numbers. You've got to focus on people as people. If two of you come together in my name, I will show up. Both this morning and this evening, in uh, playing along, helping Dawn with a little bit of music, and then trying to sing along with the worship leaders, I, I, it, it felt so good. It felt so good. And it wasn't just that being with you was so wonderful, but that is true. But it's like, oh, we're together, we're worshiping you, Lord. It was so nice. And there were some moments with, I'm just like, oh, you just sense the spirit. When you were singing that beautiful offertory tonight, I got a little sense that, hey, the Lord's here. But here's, my, here's his promise. If you'll pair up with another person for the purpose of meeting in my name, I will come. You can't beat that. What is that exactly, Pastor Brian? Well, you may know, but you know, all I can say is you just need to do it. Well, will I see him? Will he speak out loud to us? Probably not. But if you're paying attention while you meet, you'll realize he's here. In fact, that's how I got called into this 222 ministry. I have been trained by Pastor Scott. We have family that lives in um, West Melbourne, Florida, about an hour away from Port St. Lucie. We were there visiting our family. I had gotten trained by Scott in this 222 method. I was a graduate of it. I was starting to make disciples in my own church. And we decided to just have lunch just to kind of meet. And while we were there, just the two of us, I think there was only one other person in the restaurant, maybe a cook and a server, nobody else. And he started sharing his heart about our denomination, about the decline in churches, and the lack of evangelistic fervor in most of us. What's happening? What, can, what, what should we be doing and he shared with me a vision that was focused on meeting with people one-on-one -on -one and training them. He says, what if, we could get, what if we could get 300 pastors to fall in love with God in a fresh way and start training people in their churches one at a time? Oh, that would so blow up the paradigm for what pastors are supposed to do. I added this to my job description, which was already more than full at my congregation. Two sermons on Sunday, pastoral care stuff. Yeah, there was a guy I helped with that. Had my fingers kind of in a little bit of everything. But when I got a taste of the joy of meeting with a brother around the gospel, teaching, learning, growing, listening, and getting beneath the surface of life. I have a, I have a stunt double here tonight. 
He's dressed just like me. He's got glasses just like me. His hair is about the same color. He's got the same color belt and shoes. So if I fall over, Pastor Hank is going to be my stunt double and just be right here. I did the usual Narthex fellowship thing before the service. I said, Hank, how are you doing? And he said, what do you think he said? Starts with an F. Fine. And it's a true statement. But if it was just me and Hank, and we had an hour, so Hank, what's, what's going on? What's beneath the surface? How are things? Any cutting edges of growth in your life? Any, any joy robbers going on? Although if we were doing 222, I'd say, hey, first let's pray and let's preach the gospel to each other. Then I'd find out how Pastor Hank was really doing, which I'm sure would still be fine, but I'd have a much deeper understanding of him so that when I prayed with and for him, I'd be like, oh, he's like, he's the only person in the world that would matter to me at that moment because that is how God feels about you. And you can't get that sense in this setting. If I said, God loves you and cares about you, you go, like, yeah, okay. But if, if I had the chance to know more intimately about some of the ups and downs in your life, and then I could say, you know what? Man, I know it's, there's, there's some rough spots, but God's with you, isn't he? Even and especially when you, maybe when you don't feel like it. Because I get that. And then he would probably turn around to me and say, well, how are you doing? Your wife's battling cancer. How's it going? And I could give him some honest answers. You can't do that in a group of four or five or six. And certainly not in a couple hundred. And so Jesus said, here's, here's what I'm after. I am after an intimate knowledge of you and me. But it's not going to happen just in your own personal devotions. That's an important part of our lives. And we're taught to do that. We, some of us do that with some faithfulness. And God shows up there as well because the Holy Spirit is awful there. But he's also said, look, at, I made you part of a community. Speaking of which, let me show you with you an interesting Hebrew word. So you, if you forget everything else that I've said tonight, if this doesn't phase you at all, you'll at least come away with a cool Hebrew word. And that is the word minion. What is grew? Involved in this? What in the world is a minion? Well, you see, the Jews had laws and rules about everything because they were given laws and rules, but some of them took it to excess. And somebody asked the question, how many of us need to meet in order to have a legitimate prayer meeting? To call it a sanctioned time of worship. And somehow they came to the conclusion that there must be a minion, which is ten. But they have to be guys. Sorry, ladies. Although later in Judaism, they would get a little more modern and they decided, oh, women count too. But originally, it took ten men. You could be 13 if you had gone through your bar mitzvah. You could be one of the ten. And if ten of you come together, then it is a legitimate time.
time of worship. And part of me, I can't prove this, church, but I'm wondering, is Jesus saying this in contrast to that? You've got to have ten. doesn't count. Jesus is like, no. It's just two. Because I'm looking for a broken and contrite heart. I'm not impressed with how many people you can gather. What I'm impressed with is, are you going to focus on me? And if two or three will do that, count me in. Back to my lunch with Scott. We were having lunch together. He was sharing with me the burden that I could tell the Holy Spirit's put on this guy's heart. He not only has a, he has a burden for Port St. Lucie. And they've been reaching many, many lost people. There. They've, they've grown a Christian school now up to through fifth grade, 500 students. The purpose of the school is to bring the gospel to unbelieving people and educate disciple children in the faith. But they are a church that is passionate now about we are here to disciple our community. Some of that spirit I caught when just the two of us were in the room and all of a sudden it happened. I wouldn't call it Pentecost, but it's like the Holy Spirit just came, filled the restaurant. I sensed it. Scott sensed it. And that's when I said, I'm in. I'm on board, whatever that means. I'm like, well, okay. I'll call Keith Dornboss. We should talk to him about this. And that's how I knew I was called to do this. So I got redeployed. My wife said, at first you were a big fish in a bathtub. I spent my life wanting to be in a large groups of people and now God says, no, I want, here's what I want. I want you to meet with people one at a time. And I got to tell you, as much as I've enjoyed being with you today and teaching and preaching to a larger group, if I had to trade it, if I had a choice between meeting, say, just with you, Brian, or even you, Hank, or you, Bernie, Bernie's one of my guys from Cottonwood, I would say no if it meant one or the other. But if I could do both, that's... And so I've been converted. I'm a converted pastor, a recovering pastor. Because pastors hear about this, oh, you've got a tool that I can bring to my church where people can train each other in the gospel. Great, that'll be next fall's campaign. And I'm going to get my whole consistory on board. We'll get all 20 guys and gals. We're going to get them all trained. And next fall, we're going to train the whole church. And I go, oh, no, you'll ruin it. It's not how this goes. You, brother, train two or three yourself and call it good. Because you can't pass on what you haven't experienced. Or two or three come together in my name. I'll show up. Well, I could keep talking about this for a long time, but, you know, when the Apostle Paul did that, somebody fell out of a window and died. <laughs> and I have yet to raise somebody from the dead, and I don't think tonight will be my first night to do that. 
I don't know if you'd call this a sermon or a testimony, but it has become my passion. And I long for my colleagues who share pulp, who have pulpits, to catch this vision. You know, when I was doing this at, at my last church, it wasn't in my job description. I reported it on my monthly report to the elders. I'm meeting with Richard. I'm, I'm meeting with Tim. I'm training them in the gospel. Nobody ever said, that's awesome. Well, they did. They're like, but if I ever stop doing it, would I ever get in trouble? No. But if I refused, if I started preaching lame sermons and stopped visiting people when they needed calls, oh man, I would, right there in the neck, I'd get it. I'd love it for the day when you could not become ordained in the Christian Reformed Church until you have discipled at least two people. Why would we want to unleash you on the church when you have no clue how to do the main thing that Jesus said we're called to do? Make disciples. Do one at a time. Multiply them. Teach them. I praise God, though, for this church. You are doing this. You are practicing discipleship in more ways than you already realize. This is just another tool for you to take it to the next level and to see what God might do. And there are a handful of people already in this church who are doing this who can testify that it is the right and best thing to do. I'll let you find out who they are. If you're really, really, really curious about getting, really getting involved, not just eh, tell me more, but I'd like to really consider diving in, then uh, Deb from this morning, she has little cards. There's a website on there that you can go to and check it out. And if you really, really want to talk to a person, you can talk to me. I'll take your calls, I'll talk with you, and I'll probably refer you to somebody else from this church. But who knows, maybe I'll have space in my life and you'll be your next, my next victim. <laughs> well, we're going to take a moment right now in light of the prayer and this text to pray together in a very simple format. We're going to pray in groups of two or three, two or three. You can do four if you want. Like I, I, I see uh, the, the Dean Tour family here. There's four there. But maybe you want to split up and go two and two. Maybe mom and dad each take one of your kids. Or get rid of mom and dad. Yeah, you go. I'd rather pray with my brother than my mom. Yeah. Okay. But like you can't be alone. Like Emmanuel here, he's sitting by himself. So he's going to have to find somebody to sit with. And all we're going to do is we're going to uh, pray for a few moments for whatever's on your heart. And I, I will have one prayer request to bring to you tonight. And while we're praying, Dawn is going to play some um, nice background music for us. Our prayers will be out loud if you'd like them to be, or they can be silent as well. But I'd like, if you would right now, just decide who you're going to pair with, two or three. If you're sitting by that person already, just kind of say, you're my prayer partner tonight. If you're not... This is where pews are, are not our friends, perhaps. And while there's lots of things we could pray for, um, if you have one thing, just one thing that's on your mind and your heart, I'd like you to pray for that, whatever it is. It might be something you're thankful for, it might be a need. But I'm also, I, feel, I just feel a burden for us to pray about this um, police 
incident that happened in our city. Um, they had the funeral at Renaissance Church of God in Christ. Their lead pastor is Pastor Dennis McMurray. I've had the pleasure of knowing him for 20 years. There was a time when we were very close together. We partnered together as, as, as pastors. We shared each other's pulpits. Judy got to be called the first lady because that's the language they use in their church. But in the last several years, our paths kind of went apart. But every now and then, we'd connect with each other with texts. And it was his church that hosted this. And I saw him in the news. He was leading in prayer. And I, this afternoon, I watched, I watched the, the footage in, in its entirety. And you know, like, okay, we don't know exactly what happened. But folks, when, when, I, when I saw the police officers just trying to subdue this guy to get him to, so he could, you know, arrest him or whatever because he had the wrong plate on his car. And I wasn't sure that this gentleman even spoke much English. He seemed confused. He didn't seem like he was going to be dangerous. I don't know. The state police are investigating. But all of a sudden, he just reached into his, into his belt and he pulled out a gun and put it on this guy's back of his head and shot him to death. Now, you know, maybe there's more that's going to come out that he was, his life was in imminent danger. I don't think so. Was it racism? Or was he just a scared cop? Would he have done that if the guy was white? We don't know. But if you put yourself, which we can't, into the black community, and I saw the footage of that, of his church, I, I can't identify personally with what it's like to be an African American. You know, I'm, I'm not in favor of defunding the police. I think that's a stupid idea. But when you see, you're like, wow, okay? So here's the deal. You and I can make a difference that this horrible event, whatever it was, that God can turn it for His good. Somehow, some way. I don't know what it's going to look like. You know? Justice, do we really want to know if this police officer was truly guilty? Well, then, then let the law run its course. But... This is an opportunity where the devil is trying to create hatred and division and, and separate us as brothers in, and sisters in the Lord. Is there time to pray? It's right now. So most of us here are, are pretty much not African American. But you know what? There's neither black nor white in Christ, right? So if you could just take at least some of your moments of prayer and just lift up the situation pray for wisdom, whatever, and then pray for whatever else. And uh, after a little while, not like super long, but a little while, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll probably start singing uh, Lord, listen to children praying or something like that to close, okay? So Father, now as we are gathered here in two, as, as two or three, we pray. Hear our prayers as we pray them in Jesus' name.